Welcome to podcast episode 192. I'm Stuart McCullough, the CEO of VHA. Joining me today is the Manager of Workplace Relations Services, Tim Nagel. Welcome, Tim. Thanks, Stuart. Good to be here. Tim, we're going to get uh, straight into it today because the purpose of this podcast is to describe the process for implementation of the proposed Nurses and Midwives Agreement. And in addition to describing the process, we'll also be explaining the priority items in greater detail to support the implementation stage. So let's do a quick recap. Uh, firstly, a heads of agreement was reached in March 2020, and it was put to members in April 2020. Uh, six months on from a full bench arbitration to settle uh, a scope dispute, we don't yet have uh, a decision. Um, so that raises the question, why are we talking about implementation now? So that's a good question. On the 7th of June, we received correspondence from the Department of Health that in part stated that as a result of the delay in getting a decision, authorisation was given to implement the proposed nurses and midwives agreement by way of administrative action. So in terms of implementing by way of administrative action, has this happened on a selective basis previously? It has. So authorisation to implement by administrative action was previously granted with respect to the 2020 December pay increase and the April 2021 change in the quantum of paid parental leave. So since receiving that letter, we've met with the department and with the ANMF to discuss both the scope of what is authorised and the process for implementation. That's right. The first thing to note is that the department has confirmed that authorisation to implement by administrative action applies to the entire agreement. So the question becomes, uh, because that's a big task, is, is where do we start? Uh, ordinarily, we'd be considering this after the agreement is lodged and while we're waiting for a decision. So in our discussions, the parties have agreed to divide implementation issues into two categories, category one and category two. All right, so that begs the obvious question, what are the category one items? So these are the priority items. Uh, so category one is the uh, is the priority list. So they include some of, that are date sensitive and require immediate attention. Uh, this is a small list of items that we're asking members to act on immediately. So uh, which implementation items fall into category one? So they're up on the screen at the moment. So category one consists of the following items. So clause 27 changes to calculations for superannuation and parental leave. Uh, clause 30, which relates to allowances. Clause 30A, which is the lead apron allowance. Clause 42.7, which is the adoption of an 8810 roster by four additional health services. Clause 45.7, change of roster allowance. Clause 68, changes to the amount of continuous service required to access parental leave, including paid parental leave. Clause 70 changes to the calculation of service for long service leave and the ability to access long service leave after nine years of service. A special disaster leave, defence services leave and postgraduate midwifery students that are, that are being funded through the Workforce Development Fund initiative to those positions. So just in terms of that list, Tim, I think the postgraduate midwifery students 
uh, I think that one's already happened. Uh, so there's no, uh, we won't be talking further about that today. And with regards to the implementation of 8810 by four health services, we'll speak directly to those four health services. So we won't cover that any further today. But uh, for the purpose of this podcast, we'll be drilling down in particular uh, on the changes to superannuation, uh, long service leave and parental leave. Yeah, we'll touch briefly on the other matters as well, but that's where the focus is going to be. So the first one is changes to calculations for superannuation and parental leave clause 27. So there are two key changes to cover here. The first concerns who receives superannuation payments, particularly new entitlement to superannuation payments during unpaid parental leave. And the second concerns how superannuation payments are calculated for both paid and unpaid parental leave. So let's let's start with the relevant provision. So the re relevant term is at clause 27.6, and that's on screen at the moment. And how that reads is that superannuation during parental leave from the 1st of July 2021. So that's one of our time sensitive dates. Mm -hmm. So from 1st of July 2021, the employer will make superannuation contributions throughout any period of parental leave paid or unpaid. So you'll see on screen that these changes take effect from the 1st of July 2021, not the first full pay period on or after, but that specific date. I think that's a really important point. We're so used to the first full pay period on or after, but this is a very, very specific date, 1 July, that's the relevant date here. Correct. And, that, and the obligation from that date is to make superannuation contributions throughout any period of parental leave, paid or unpaid. So, Tim, people are accustomed to paying superannuation on paid parental leave, but from 1 July 2021, the obligation extends to that unpaid parental leave period as well. Yeah, so that's correct. That was one of our gender equity um, initiatives. And um, probably a key thing is how are the contributions to be calculated? So clause 27.6a sets this out as follows. And that's on the screen at the moment. And how it reads is that such contributions will be calculated as follows. So A, the employer's ordinary time earnings as defined in the Superannuation Guarantee Administration Act 1992, calculated on the employee's pre-salary packaging earnings and any additional amounts consistent with the trustee of the superannuation fund over 26 full pay periods immediately prior to commencing parental leave and then divided by 52, which which calculates the weekly parental leave super contribution. Let's unpack that a little bit. So the objective here is how to calculate the weekly parental super leave contribution. And to do that, an average is taken. We're looking at ordinary time earnings of 26 full pay periods divided by 52 to calculate the weekly parental leave super contribution. So if you just look on screen at the moment, so the uh, OTE for the last 26 pay periods divided by 52 equals the weekly parental leave contribution where OTE is ordinary time earnings. That takes us to when is the weekly parental leave super contribution paid? Yeah, so on each week of parental leave paid or unpaid. So as you can see on screen, the key point is that members should review how they calculate super on paid parental leave because that's changing. Yeah, I think that's a key point. So we should acknowledge that some members may previously have taken a different approach to calculating super contributions for paid parental leave. In particular, they may have taken a base rate approach uh, to parental leave, and this in turn was reflected in a super contribution. Yes, but first, from the 1st of July, the approach is the averaging of ordinary times earnings approach, which will give us a consistent approach across the field. 
And what if an employee has a period of parental leave that is less than a week? The weekly parental super contribution should be prorated, and that's within the clause of the agreement, specifically at 27.6B Roman numeral 1. So that's a proportionate payment. What happens if during the parental leave the wages go up? So where during the period of parental leave either, and whether it's either paid or unpaid, the employee's rate of pay increases under clause 25.2, the employee's pre-salary packaging earnings, as calculated above, will be increased accordingly from the relevant date and superannuation paid on the increased amount, and that's clause 27.6b, Roman numeral 2. So, in effect, the weekly parental super contribution will increase in line with wages? Yeah, that's correct. And at some point during most parental leaves, wages will go up. Um, so, the next one, as we can see on screen, is long service leave clause 70. So long service leave entitlements are uh, set out at clause 70 of the proposed nurses and midwives agreement. And there are two key, key changes that we're going to outline today. Yes, one is the change to when long service leave can be accessed, which takes effect from the 1st of July 2021. And the second change concerns what counts for service. Yes, and that takes effect from the 1st of July 2020, so, uh, so nearly a year ago. But we're going to go into greater detail on that in a moment. All right, let's let's start with access. Uh, so firstly, access to long service leave. Um, this is a process where the amount of service that is required to access long service leave, which has been at 10 years forever, uh, will gradually be brought to seven years. Yeah, that's correct. So you'll see on the screen uh, the text from clause 70.4b, and that provides uh, subject to clause 70.7c, the entitlement under clause 70.4a Roman numeral 1 may be taken in advance on a pro rata basis if the employee has accrued continuous service of at least Roman numeral 1, 10 years, as at the date of which this agreement is approved by the Fair Work Commission, or Roman numeral 2 from the 1st of July 2021, 9 years, or Roman numeral 3 from the 1st of July 2022, 8 years, or Roman numeral four from the 1st of July, 2023, seven years. I'm sure that people watching will, will note that first Roman numeral in terms of the date the agreement is approved by the Fair Work Commission, which hasn't happened, but the, the dates at Roman numerals two, three, and four are the dates that we, we are sticking with. So that, that first step permits access at nine years of service from 1 July, 2021. Um, again, um, that is a specific date. It's not the first full pay period on or after. Yeah, that's right. So from the 1st of July 2021, that will apply. So let's talk about the changes as to what counts for service uh, and those changes that have effect from the 1st of July 2020. And we're talking about them now as people need to take them into account for any application they now receive, especially with a change to the point of access. A valid example is where the uh, changes as to what counts for service may make a difference as to whether an employee is eligible or not. Yeah, correct. Also, the changes to service will be relevant if paying out long service leave on termination or for anyone who takes long service leave from now on so the employee is accurately advised as to the quantum of leave available to them. Uh, so what is the relevant term of the proposed agreement regarding service? I'm glad you asked, Stuart. It's clause 70.5b, Roman numeral 6c, provides that on and from the 1st of July 2020, that any period of unpaid leave taken on account of illness or injury, a 
a period of parental leave, including parental leave that is extended under clause 68.12, or the first 52 weeks of any type of unpaid leave not specifically referenced in this clause will count as continuous service. So the effect of this change is that some absences that previously did not count for service, but did not break service will now count uh, from 1 July 2020 uh, for, as service for the purposes of long service leave. Uh, so that's correct, yes, from the 1st of July 2020, and that's really to uh, balance the provisions of the Long Service Act with, act with the agreement terms. Yeah, really it aligns the, the what counts as service with that Long Service Leave Act. Um, so if a member receives an application for Long Service Leave today, uh, what should the member do to ensure that the amount of service is correctly calculated? You would do the following. Uh, so firstly, determine whether one or one of three things has happened from the 1st of July 2020, which may impact the calculation of service. So these three things are as follows. Uh, one, did the employee take a period of unpaid leave on account of illness or injury? Uh, two, did the employee take parental leave? And finally, did the employee take another type of unpaid leave we haven't referred to before? Although in that case, there is a 52 week cap. So it's interesting in terms of that 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 group, the parental leave one um, probably has the most work to do. Um, so the question is whether someone took parental leave or unpaid leave from 1 July 2020, and if so, um, will the service need to be adjusted? Uh, and to be clear, we're talking about you know uh, we're talking about parental leave. Uh, we're talking about any type of parental leave, including extended parental leave. Correct. So we've discussed, discussed this in the context of, of applications that are made now or payments uh, that are made now on termination. Um, but going back to that point that the service change has a retrospective date of 1 July 2020. So it does, and there will be a need to make adjustments to service calculations more broadly. But the urgent category one task concerns new application and payments. Broader adjustments will need to be made as part of the category two implementation issues, which we'll address separately. And so that takes us to parental leave, I think, in, in clause 68. So previously, uh, members have implemented an increase in the quantum of paid parental leave by way of administrative action after it was previously authorised. That's right. This concerns who is eligible. Uh, the relevant provision is at clause 68.2D which defines the term eligible employee as follows. Uh, eligible employee for the purpose of this clause 68 means an employee who has had at least six months continuous service or an eligible casual employee as defined above. So eligible casuals have their own rules, but um, otherwise there is a, a reduction in the amount of service required to qualify for parental leave from 12 months to six months. Yes, for those, for those permanent employees. But to understand this correctly, it's important that the meaning of the term continuous service is considered. This definition is unchanged, but for the sake of completeness, you can find it at clause 68.2b of the agreement. And it reads as follows, continuous service includes continuous service with one and the same employer or continuous service with more than one employer, including institutions or statutory bodies, as defined at subclause 70.1. And includes any period of employment that would count as service under the Act. So clause 70.1 concerning long service leave, meaning that if you have um, if you have six months service and change uh, employers, 
um, the effect of that cross-reference to 70.1 means that you don't need to re-qualify for parental leave when you when you make that change. Yeah, and that's that's correct, and that's unchanged in the new agreement. Uh, and is this change retro retrospective? Be some retrospectivity, uh, but the first thing is to apply this change now for current applications as an urgent priority. We'll provide further advice regarding the retrospective component as part of category two. So that takes us to allowances. So we're going to break allowances into two teams, as it were, uh, those being existing allowances that are indexed in that first group. So most allowances, with the exception of relocation allowance, index with wages. Wages increase on the first full pay period on or after the 1st of December 2020. So those index rates should now be applied to allowances. Again, uh, implement the new rate as a priority item. Uh, any retrospectivity will be addressed as a category two implementation item shortly. Also, there are changes to the minimum payments for vehicle allowances that have also been included. Again, the category one task is to implement the new rates. And those rates can be found in salary circular 784. Uh, that takes us to, to the second bunch of allowances, and there are three allowance changes I want to highlight as follows being change of roster at clause 45.7, uh, lead apron allowance at clause 30A, and an amended qualification allowance at clause 31. So change of roster allowance clause 45.7 provides a two-tiered approach to change of roster allowance as follows. So where the notice is given of a change of roster with seven days or less notice, there's a 5% of the base rate as defined. And if it's provided with eight to 14 days notice, then it's 2.5% of the base rate as defined. And of course, it excludes emergencies external to the employer. So the effect is to, to double the existing change of roster allowance with seven days or less notices provided of a change in roster and to apply the previous 2.5% allowance to changes with eight to 14 days notice. Yeah, that's correct. But again, the priority is to affect the change as part of category one, not to consider that retrospectivity. Uh, that will follow in, in category two. So clause 30A and the lead apron allowance. Yeah, so the allowance is $8 per shift for employees required to wear a lead apron in the course of their usual duties. So the key term seems to be the course of their usual duties. Tim, can you give examples of where someone might wear a lead apron in the course of their usual duties? Yeah, so radiology departments is a good example. Cath labs is another example of where they would usually wear a lead apron as part of their usual duties. But it's, it's important also to note in terms of that allowance that it's not pro rata, it's per day. And again, it's about applying uh, that um, that change, um, and then we'll deal with any retrospectivity as category two, and that will be the subject of further advice. Uh, there's also a new 3.5% qualification allowance payable to employees required by their employer to hold a certificate for in TAE. Yes, and that's effective from the first full pay period on or after the 1st of January 2021. But the category one step is to identify and begin paying the allowance where applicable. I think that now takes us to the absence on defence service, which is clause 72.1 of the new agreement. Uh, very briefly, uh, this is a make-up pay scheme similar to the one that applies for jury service. So that's correct. If a part-time or full-time employee seeks to be absent on defence service within the meaning of the Defence Reserve Service Protection Act 2001, then this term will apply. 
that takes us to Special Disaster Leave or Clause 72B of the new agreement? So Special Disaster Leave is a Category 1 item because these events can occur at any time, as unfortunately became clear last week. So put simply, it's an entitlement capped at three days, paid leave where a person is unable to attend work during disaster, such as fire or flood. Uh, and it applies where personal leave is not available. Yes, if the situation is one where personal leave is available, it shouldn't. It should not be used. Uh, should, personal leave should be used, not the not the disaster leave. Uh, and it's important to note uh, that part of the reason for that is that if if it falls into that personal leave uh, bucket, then you know personal leave is is not capped. Correct. This is where personal leave isn't available either because it's been exhausted or the circumstances don't fit within the boundaries of personal leave. Um, yes, the purpose is to create an additional entitlement here where uh, someone is unable to attend work during a disaster such as fire or, or flood. Uh, just up on screen, we're just putting up some um, uh, details as to where you can find further information. So more information is available at Bulletin 661. Bulletin 661 contains a, a link to an implementation guide uh, which covers the matters that we've covered today, as well as Salary Circular 784, uh, which contains the rates for the allowances that we have discussed today. We'll also be developing a list of items that require further implementation support uh, in conjunction with our reference group and uh, established meetings following consultation with members. Tim, thank you for taking time to uh, walk through the Category 1 implementation issues for the Nurses and Midwives Agreement. My pleasure. Thank you.